Turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. Hebrews, chapter 9. We'll be reading verses 23 through 28. And considering Christ, our hope. Hebrews, chapter 9, verses 23 through 28. Give attention to God's holy word. Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to offer, he, uh, suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the end of the ages he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and bow our knees before you. And we ask, Lord, that by the merits and the mercies of Christ, you would pour out your Holy Spirit and strengthen us in the inner man so that we might be able to bear the weight of the glory of the love of Christ. For we confess, O Lord, that the glories of Christ are beyond us. They are beyond our comprehension. They're beyond our strength to receive. And so we ask you for the strengthening of the Spirit that your Son might be glorified and we might be edified. We pray this all for Jesus' sake. Amen. St. Paul said in the book of Romans that we are saved by hope. The author to the Hebrews has already taught us in chapters 6 and 7 that there is a hope set before us and that this hope is the anchor of the soul. Furthermore, he goes on to say in chapter 7 that the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope by which we draw near to God does. So the question is, what is hope? Most today think of hope as a dream or a wish. I hope I get the Christmas present I asked for this year. I hope that so-and-so is elected. I hope my husband or my wife is in a good mood when I come home. In our secular age, hope is looked upon as a childish thing. A thing fit only for those who do not want to face reality. Cynicism is the result of this, and in our age of hypocrisy, lies, and broken promises, it's no wonder that many go through life without hope. 
The scriptures, though, shine a light on our hopelessness. In the scriptures, we have hope. The hope of scripture, the hope that Paul and the author to the Hebrews speak of, is a certain expectation of some good. Hope, according to the Bible, is not a dream. It's not a fancy. It's not a wish. It is not a light and airy thing. It is not a castle in the sky. It is weighty and massive. It is a certainty and a calm assurance that God will fulfill what He has promised. If faith fights to gain the victory over unbelief, 1 Timothy 6 verse 12, then hope rests in the spoils of that war. Hope is so central to the Christian life that Paul the Apostle lists it among the three chief Christian virtues. Faith, love, and hope. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. My prayer this morning is that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, will give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, and that your eyes being enlightened, you might know what is the hope of His calling. This section of Hebrews has been comparing the Old and New Covenants. They are both expressed in a certain form of worship. And they are both based on a particular kind of sacrifice. In this section, the author is going to teach us that the New Covenant worship and New Covenant hope are superior to the Old Covenant. And this is for one very important reason. The sacrifice of the New Covenant is superior to the sacrifice of the Old Covenant. The sacrifice of the New Covenant, according to the weight of the glory of the blood of Christ, accomplishes what God has promised. As we look at this passage, we're going to see specifically Christ's sacrifice is the hope of New Covenant worship and the basis of New Covenant hope. Christ's sacrifice is the hope of New Covenant worship and the basis of New Covenant hope. We're going to see two things in this passage. Verses 23 through 26, New Covenant worship. And verses 27 and 28, New Covenant hope. 23 through 26 is New Covenant worship. 27 and 28 is new covenant hope. And so we begin by looking at new covenant worship. One thing to keep in mind is that all worship is based in hope. 
Christ taught us in John chapter 4 that those who worship the Father must worship Him in spirit and in truth. This means at a minimum that we must worship by faith in hope to worship in spirit and in truth. We worship an invisible God who has made spiritual promises. You cannot see the God that you worship. And you cannot sense with the five physical senses. You cannot sense His blessings with the senses of the body. But you can hope. And this hope is expressed in worship. The section, as I mentioned, we've been looking at is comparing Old and New Covenants. Verse 23, he picks this comparison up once again. He compares the Old and New Covenant, and notice what he calls the earthly things. Verse 23, therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens... Remember a little bit of the context. The things that he's referring to, the copies of the things in the heavens, refers to all the parts of Old Covenant worship. Specifically in verses 19 through 21, we have three things that Moses sprinkled with blood. The book, the people, and the tabernacle. And so according to the Old Covenant system, which was external, and it was an earthly form of worship. It was merely a copy of the things in the heavens, but not the things in the heavens themselves. These things, verse 23, had to be purified with earthly sacrifices, the blood of bulls and goats. Notice, they were purified with sacrifices proper to their nature. It was earthly worship. It was an, uh, uh, the old covenant. It was an earthly hope. And so it was purified with an earthly sacrifice. Notice again the word that we've seen in this section, purified, in verse 23. This word purifies as, uh, purified, as we have seen, is a Greek word, katharizo. Katharizo is a word that means to cleanse. It's a word that's used for the cleansing of the leper. It's a word that's used for cleansing all over the ceremonial law in the Greek version of the Old Testament. It comes up in the New Testament many places. This is just one of them. This is a term that's used for sanctification. To be cleansed means to be made holy. And so what the author is saying is that this earthly worship had to be made holy in this way. Now we need to remember, to worship a holy God requires holiness. To worship the God of creation requires us to be holy. Notice he says, it was necessary for them to be cleansed. It was necessary for them to be purified. You remember Aaron's turban when it's described in Exodus 28. All the clothing of Aaron is described. And then it gets to the section that talks about Aaron's turban. Exodus 28 verses 36 and 37 if you want to follow along. In that section Aaron is given this turban. And then the Lord tells Moses you shall make a, a, a plate. 
that says holiness to the Lord and put it on top of Aaron's turban, on the front of Aaron's turban. Aaron was, uh, as it were, symbolically consecrated, made holy, cleansed, set apart to worship the Lord. The reason we must be holy to worship a holy God is because of His awesome holiness. Turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, the great story of Isaiah's vision of the Lord's throne room. In Isaiah chapter 6, the king has just died. And Isaiah is given a vision of the heavenly throne room. And this is what he saw. Isaiah 6 verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now notice, not only do the angels cry out that God is three times holy, He is the holy, holy, holy God, but notice what the angels are doing. The the angels who dwell in God's presence, who never fall into sin, who have never been tainted with the uncleanness of iniquity, cover their faces in shame before this God. That's how holy God is. Even those who have never sinned are not worthy to worship Him. Notice they cover their faces. They also cover their feet. Feet, in the Scriptures, is a symbol of being a creature. Those that have feet are created beings. And so the angels cover their feet because they are not the Creator. And therefore, they are unworthy to worship Him because of His holiness. Going back to Hebrews chapter 9, the author tells us it's necessary that the earthly things had to be cleansed. How much more then do the heavenly things need to be cleansed with a greater sacrifice? That's the force of verse 23. He says if the earthly tabernacle, the people in the book had to be cleansed, how much more do the heavenly things need to be cleansed? That is a difficulty in this verse. What are these heavenly things? It may seem odd to us to say that the things of heaven need to be purified. That the things of heaven need to be cleansed by a sacrifice. Well, I think if we pay careful attention to the context and keep in mind the comparison he's making, the heavenly things that he's speaking about are all of the spiritual acts of worship All of the spiritual things that our soul does in worship, which the earthly tabernacle and all of its furniture, all of its equipment, symbolized. You notice that he's comparing old covenant worship, tabernacle, Aaron, blood of bulls and goats. Aaron moves in a certain way when they go into that tabernacle and worship. He has to do certain things in the tabernacle. All of that is earthly. And so by the contrast, I think what the heavenly things are, are the spiritual realities that we engage in when we worship in the new covenant. 
I think those are the heavenly things he's speaking about. Well, let's consider some of the parts of worship. He speaks about the people needing to be cleansed. This refers to the people of God, obviously. In the Old Covenant, it was those who were blood descendants of Abraham and had the outward sign of circumcision. Those are the ones who received the blood. In the New Covenant, though, it is those who have been baptized by the Holy Spirit, as Paul calls it in Colossians 2. Through the baptism of Christ, you have received the circumcision, not made with hands, but the circumcision of Christ, the transformation of the heart. Christ, in his ministry, all the gospel accounts record this, that Christ's ministry is not to baptize with water, but to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And so the people of God in the new covenant are those who not merely have been outwardly washed by water, but those who have been inwardly transformed by the work of the Spirit, that Christ performs through the work of His Spirit. Many passages speak of this, but I just want to draw your attention to 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5. The word baptism is not used here, but the idea of baptism is. Baptism represents union with Christ. Romans chapter 6 is a good reference for that. Baptism unites us with Christ. Now, in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes, and he speaks about the people of God. In verse 14, For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. That's union with Christ. If he died, we died. If one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away and all things have been made new. Brothers and sisters, the point of this passage and this section is that you, through the work of Christ, are one of the heavenly things. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 that your citizenship is in heaven. He says in Colossians chapter 3 that your life is hidden with Christ in God in heaven. You are a heavenly thing through Christ that makes you fit to worship in the heavenly places. But there's more. Not only do we have the people of God, we have the book of God. This obviously refers to the word of God. And in Revelation chapter 5 verses 1 through 7 we see that great image of the throne room. The Father, sitting on the throne, has a scroll that no one is worthy to open. And John the Apostle weeps because nobody can open the scroll of God's Word except the Lamb of God who was slain. He ascends the throne and is worthy to take the scroll and open the seals. Likewise, in 2 Corinthians 3, you should still be in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 6, The Apostle writes about the glory of the New Covenant as it relates to the Word of God. And the glory of the New Covenant is that the Word of God is not merely outwardly, but it is inward. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.1, Do we begin again to commend ourselves? 
Or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation from you? You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Brothers and sisters, see the glory of this. Aaron had the names of Israel written on his clothes. Paul says ministers of the new covenant have the names of the people written on their souls. You are written on our hearts, read by all men. Clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. And we have such trust through Christ, uh, uh, through Christ toward God. Not that we think ourselves sufficient, or is anything being of ourselves, our sufficiency is from God, who made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, and the Spirit gives life. And so in the book of God, and in the word of God, in the new covenant, the word of God is made powerful, not to ring in your ears, but to transform your heart. Well, finally, in Hebrews 9, you have the people, you have the book, but you also have the tabernacle. The tabernacle refers to the worship of God, the the actual acts of worship that we engage in. In the tabernacle, there's many things that could be pointed out. There's many elements to tabernacle worship. There's only one thing I want to focus on. And that's the pinnacle of religious worship. The pinnacle of religious worship is symbolized in the tabernacle system in two ways. It's the one thing Aaron did on the Day of Atonement that he couldn't do any other day. And it's symbolized by a piece of furniture that is placed right in front of the veil. And this piece of furniture was covered in gold. That's the altar of incense. When Aaron went into the holy place on the Day of Atonement, he went in and offered incense before the mercy seat. These things are all symbolic of prayer. The altar of incense was the altar of prayer. The golden censer that Aaron brought into the holy place represented the prayers of Israel. Our confession, chapter 21, verse, uh, paragraph 3, Westminster, chapter 21, paragraph 3, says that prayer with thanksgiving being one special part of religious worship. In the language of the time when the confession was written, the word special means peculiar, excellent, dignified, distinguished, extraordinary, preeminent, Deuteronomy 26, 26, Moses is praying and he says, O Lord, look down from heaven your holy habitation. Psalm 91, verses 14 through 16, the psalmist is writing and he says, the Lord makes a promise and says that because he set his love upon me, he will call upon me and I will answer him. I with him in trouble. Brothers and sisters, prayer is the pinnacle of religious worship because it is by prayer that you peer over the threshold of heaven. It 
is by prayer that you draw near to God. It is by prayer that you enter in more fully of the holy place than Aaron did when he had the tabernacle. Now, perhaps some of you are thinking, what about preaching? Preaching is the primary means of grace. Religious worship is a two-way street. God speaks to you, and you speak to God. Preaching is the primary way that God speaks to you. The pinnacle of your speaking to God is prayer. And it is through the sacrifice of Christ that we, transformed by the word of God, are made able to pray unto God as the pinnacle of our religious worship. Brothers and sisters, if you don't get anything else out of this sermon, get this. Pray. Pray. And if you pray, you will do well. No matter what else you do. Because this is the pinnacle of our religious worship. And so the author says these heavenly things had to be purified with better sacrifices than these. Now in verses 24 and 26, he goes into the ministry of Christ, uh, uh, which is why these heavenly things are worthy, which is why these heavenly things are effectual. He, He begins to speak about the ministry of Christ in verse 24. For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Notice what he says. He appears in the presence of God for us. Listen to the words of the Nicene Creed. The second article of the Nicene Creed is about the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate in the womb of the Virgin and suffered under Pontius Pilate and was crucified, rose, ascended, and now reigns at the right hand of God all for you, not for himself. This is why our worship is effectual. This is why our worship is heavenly. Because our high priest doesn't minister in an earthly tabernacle. Our high priest ministers in the heavenly tabernacle. And that is why new covenant worship is superior. Brothers and sisters, all that Christ does is for you. All that Christ is is for his people. All that Christ has earned, suffered, paid for, and been glorified in is all yours. In suffering and rising, in dying and reigning, in the incarnation and his exaltation. Therefore let man not glory in man, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. And you are Christ's and Christ is God's. But there's more. 
Christ not only is in the presence of God the Father on our behalf, he also pleads the merits of his own blood. Verse 25. He's in the presence of God, not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You see, in the Old Covenant, Aaron offered the blood of others. Aaron offered the blood of substitutes. In the New Covenant, our high priest offers his own blood. The priest is the sacrifice. A couple of things to learn from this. First, it was a voluntary sacrifice. I dare say that bulls and goats didn't volunteer to be offered on the altar. Christ volunteered. It is also a mediatorial sacrifice. What does that mean? Mediatorial means it takes your place. His sacrifice substitutes for you. But notice also, in the sacrifice of Christ, the love of Christ. Paul writes about this in many places. Romans 5 is one of the most famous. What would motivate someone to die for sinners? Why would anybody give his life up for a good man? Someone might die for a righteous man, but for a good man? We weren't even good. We were sinners and enemies of God. And then Christ died for the ungodly because of his love for us. And it's because of these things that new covenant worship has hope. Not vain, wishful thinking. Not, not a, a, a castle in the sky or, or a, a, uh, a wish that we're doing something here but it's based on a certain assurance that the worship of God will accomplish what he promised it to, to accomplish. How beautiful is the worship of the new covenant? By the worship of the new covenant, in the blood of Christ and through the prayers of the saints, you enter heaven. But this worship can only be performed in faith and in hope. The worship of the new covenant does not consist in outward ceremony, but in spiritual efficacy. The glory of what we do here is not what you can see with your eyes. It is what the soul hopes for. Union and communion with God. Turn to Psalm 84, where the psalmist gives a beautiful expression to this hope. To the chief musician on an instrument of Gath, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young 
Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They will still be praising you. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength, each one appearing before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. O God, behold our shield and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. If you hope in God, worship God. Pray to God. Because the sacrifice of the new covenant means that your prayers are heard. But there's more in Hebrews 9. Not only does our worship in the new covenant have great hope, not only does the sacrifice of Christ benefit us now, it will also benefit us on the last day. In verses 27 and 28, the author now moves to speak about the hope of the new covenant. What is it that we're all striving for and looking for? Well, that is the return of Christ. Christ shall not remain in heaven. He shall return to judge the living and the dead. On that day, every word of God will be fulfilled. Every sin brought into judgment. On that day, the hills will melt and the oceans will boil. On that day, kings and princes, judges and wise men, women and children will weep and wail. For the glory of the Lord of hosts will be revealed, and all flesh will stand before him to give an account. Who can endure that day? Who can endure everlasting fire that proceeds from the throne of God? Who can stand in that day when the books are opened and every deed, including every secret thing, is brought into judgment? Who is able, if, as the book of Job says, we are not even able to defeat Leviathan, we are not even able to slay the Leviathan, who can stand before the creator of the Leviathan? Who is able to stand on Judgment Day? No one. Except those for whom Christ died. Look at what he says. Verse 27, As it is appointed once for men to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. And to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin for salvation. Christ's sacrifice is so effectual that judgment day, which is a terror to Satan and all of his kingdom, it is the one thing that they dread more than anything. You remember when Christ is in the Gospels casting out the demons 
And the demons say, we know who you are, the Holy One of God. Don't torment us before the time. Don't judge us now because we can't bear it. The thing that makes demons tremble is for you and I our greatest hope. Because of the sacrifice of Christ fully putting away our sins. Notice how the author describes it. He says, those who eagerly wait for him. Those who are eagerly anticipating the return of Christ. Several passages speak about this eager expectation. Philippians 3.20, Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. From which we look for that glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Titus 2.13, Paul calls the, the return of Christ the glorious appearing and the blessed hope. Revelation, I'm sorry, Romans 5, 1 through 5, Paul writes and says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This is the hope of the Christian, brothers and sisters. The return of Christ. That, that's the only thing that matters. Life, death, prosperity, poverty, popularity, scorn. None of that matters because Christ is returning. Even as the psalmist says in Psalm 84, my heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. That's all I want. That's all I need. Now this hope is the basis for our sanctification. You know, when young people get married, there's a lot of anticipation. There's a lot of eager expectation. There's a lot of uh, looking to the chamber of the spouse, waiting for them to appear. And the young people that get married, as they prepare for this day, they're eagerly waiting for that union with their spouse. And because they want to enjoy that union, they get themselves ready. It's, it's almost a, uh, it's, it's a truism that the bridal chamber is just a buzz with all the women and the flowers and the dresses and the paint and the makeup and the hairdos. They're getting the bride ready. They're doing everything they can to make her as beautiful and fitting so that when she appears, the groom sees her and his heart melts. That's what life in the church is now. This is the bridal chamber. We are the bride of Christ. And all the work that we have is all of the fuss getting us ready so that when Christ appears, we shall not be ashamed at his coming. Look at 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. 1 John 2.28, John writes about the return of Christ. It says, Now little children abide in Him, that when He appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of Him. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. 
Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. And everyone who has this hope in the return of Christ purifies himself just as Christ is pure. This hope is the basis of our sanctification. Let me, let me put this in plain language. You should desire to grow in holiness because your Savior is returning. You should desire to grow in holiness because the one who loved you, the one who gave himself for you, the one who is the chief among 10,000 is coming to receive you to himself. Don't you want to be ready? When Christ returns, the, the heart of every Christian should be that when he returns, I want to run to him. Just as Peter ran to him when they were fishing on the sea. John says, it's the Lord. Peter jumps out of the boat and runs to shore. That's how I want to be when Christ returns. And the only way to get there is to grow in holiness. This is the basis of our sanctification. Let me correct an error as well when it comes to sanctification. We often misunderstand sanctification many times because we misunderstand the sacrifice of Christ. We think justification is God's work. It sets me on the right path. Sanctification is my work, and I have to run the path so that I don't go to hell. That's not the picture of the New Testament. The picture of the New Testament is that your salvation is all in Christ. He justifies you, and through his work, he sanctifies you to prepare you to glorify you. That's what the author means when he says he'll appear with salvation. That's glory upon the people of God. He justifies you, he sanctifies you because he's going to glorify you because he loves you. Not because you can do any of this yourself. This brings us now to the final comment on this passage. There's, there's more that could be said, but notice the end times language. Verse 27. I'm sorry, verse 26. Now once at the end of the ages he has appeared. As it is appointed once for men to die, Christ will appear a second time. This is end times language. This is what they call eschatology. That's a big $5 word. It means the study of the end times. What we see here is the proper use of the end times. You know, the study of eschatology often becomes a pointless endeavor. It's often a wasted topic because many of us are more concerned with the details of history rather than growing with holiness, which is the proper use of eschatology. The end times have been revealed to us, and by the way, we haven't been given a whole lot. All we've been told, as the creeds of the church say, is that at the end of history, Christ will come, judgment begins, eternal state. That's really it. All the rest is all the rest. 
the reason this has been revealed to us is not to figure out what the history books will say. It's to motivate us to grow in holiness. That's why the end times have been revealed. Listen to what James Henley Thornwell, a great Southern Presbyterian, said on this theme. The end times, the new covenant promises, holiness. Just, just soak these in. If the church could be aroused to a deeper sense of the glory that awaits her, she would enter with a warmer spirit into the struggles that are before her. Hope would inspire order. She would even now arise from the dust and like the eagle plume her pinions for loftier flights than she has yet taken. What she lacks and what every individual Christian lacks is faith. Faith in her sublime vocation, in her divine resources, in the presence and efficacy of the spirit that dwells in her. Faith in the truth, faith in Jesus, and faith in God. With such a faith, there would be no need to speculate about the future. That would speedily reveal itself. It is our unfaithfulness, our negligence and unbelief, our low and carnal aims that retard the chariot of the Redeemer. The bridegroom cannot come until the bride has made herself ready. Let the church be in earnest after greater holiness in her own members and in faith and love undertake the conquest of the world and she will soon settle the question whether her resources are competent to change the face of the earth. Brothers and sisters, there's nothing certain in this life. Riches flee away. Health fails. Families die. Parents forsake. Children move away. Governments rise and fall. Only in Christ do we have hope. Only in Christ do we find the anchor for our souls. Only in His sacrifice does our worship find its power. And only in His return will we finally receive that which we seek, salvation. Consider the very last words of the Bible. The very last words of all Scripture is faith in the promise expressed through a prayer. Deuteronomy 22, 20 and 21. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The Bible ends with a prayer for the return of Christ. This is the pinnacle of our worship. Is praying, laboring, for His return, which is the only hope we have in this life. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for 
the hope in Christ. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to fix our eyes on his return. Help us as heavenly beings, having been set apart by the blood of Christ to live in a heavenly way, looking for the returning of the Lord Jesus, and in the meantime, strengthen us to walk the path you've set before us, rejoicing all the way until you receive us in glory. And we pray this all for Jesus' sake. Amen.